Let's begin. Pass it out over here. Pass it out on this side. The story begins a lengthy story with lots of details, but we'll go through some of the, the main points. It's about 1,500 years after creation. The Torah, in the first portion we read last week, starts off with God creating the world, the six days of creation, and the seventh day of Shabbos. He creates Adam and Eve, and there's a sin of the tree, the Eve from the tree of knowledge. Now there, 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 there's uh, their punishments for that, and then their children are born. Um, and then some other stories that are in the, in the first portion. And then comes 1,500 years later. Right? The, for, the first parasha covers about 1,500 years. 1,500 years later, since creation, there's a man named Noah. Noah was married. His wife's name, I believe, was Naama. I have to check that up. I believe her, her name was Naama. And they had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Yefes. I'm not sure how you say it in English. Maybe Seth, Ham, and jo jo Joseph. Huh? Something like that. We'll say it in Hebrew. Shem. Creation, yes. About, roughly, you know, somewhere around there. Maybe a little less. Yeah. Shame, Cham, and Yefes. Just to put things into perspective, people lived really long then. Adam lived till 930. If you remember, we once spoke, I think it was the first class, not everyone was here, that Noah was, uh, Adam was supposed to live for a thousand years, and he gave 70 years to King David. He lived for 930 years. Uh, the, the man that's recorded in the Torah that lived the longest was Misushelach, and he lived for 969 years. Right. As the generations went, the, the lifespan uh, got a little shortened. Noah was 500 years old when he had children, it says. Shem, Cham, and Yefes, and they were all married. So it was Noah and his wife, his three sons, and their wives. And no grandchildren yet. And we see in source number one. The Torah tells us, God saw the earth, and behold, it had become corrupted. For all flesh had corrupted its way on the earth. The people, the animals, the world has become corrupted. What exactly was the corruption? The commentators explained to us there was a, a lot of uh, adultery, there was idolatry, there was um, a lot of robbery, and the world was just corrupt. So, the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark. You and all your household, for it is you that I have seen as a righteous man before me in this generation. So everybody was corrupt. Noah and his family were not. They were not influenced by their surroundings, by their neighbors. And God tells Noah to build himself an ark. And the Torah goes into the dimensions of the ark. It was about 450 feet long, about 75 feet wide, and I think 75 feet tall. A very large um, building, you know, ark, floating ark, an ark that can float, a ship. Some say uh, recently that they found the remnants of this ark. Yeah. Uh, where? Somewhere Mount in... Mount Ararat. Yeah, it where, says that the, after the flood, the, the ark um, landed, you know, it got stuck on, the, on this mountain, Mount Ararat. Where is that? I'm not sure exactly. Turkey. Turkey. I guess according, maybe according to the dimensions... Either way, so to answer Brian's question, Noah, it took 120 years for him to build the ark. 
He built it all by himself. And the reason why God told Noah to build the ark himself, in order for it to take 120 years, in order that people should ask him, what are you doing? And he kept telling them, if you're not going to repent, if you're not going to better your ways, there's going to be a flood and I'm building an ark to save myself and my family. Obviously, not anyone could have built an ark. It was a miracle from Hashem, but that's what he told them. So even if after 120 years, they're seeing him doing this, they still didn't repent, then there's no choice. And what happened? God told Noah, come into the ark because there's going to be a big flood that's going to wash away all living people, all living uh, creatures. Some say the fish, different opinions, the fish did survive. All plants, everything was just washed away. And we see in source number two, now the flood was 40 days upon the earth. After multiple warnings, nothing helped. God said to Noah, come into the ark, and the flood began. It was 40 days and 40 nights upon the earth, and the waters increased, and they lifted the ark, and it rose off the earth. The waters began to, it says the, the heavens uh, opened, and also the waters from uh, under, underground opened up. The waters became exceedingly powerful. It wasn't just nice rain. It was winds. It was like a hurricane. Uh, everything together. A tornado. Who knows? Everything. All, all these things together. The waters became exceedingly powerful upon the earth. And all of the lofty mountains that were under the heavens were covered up. Even Mount Everest. All of the mountains. It wasn't just in one area. So the, the whole world was submerged in water. Everything was covered by, by, these, by the flood waters. For 40 days and 40 nights it was raining. Can you imagine? Couldn't see the earth anymore. The ground, all the, the dry land was covered. Yeah. And Noah and his family are in the ark. In the ark, there was animals. God told them to take seven peers, male and female, of each of the kosher animals that were later will be taught to the Jews as kosher animals, and one pair, a male and a female, of the non-kosher animals. Animals, birds, uh, you know, all kinds of uh, crawling creep, uh, creatures, all kinds of things. Uh, also some plants as graves, certain uh, plants were also brought in to be able to start again after. They were all in the, in the, in the ark. The flood lasted, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, but for 150 days after that, the waters were, you know, just hanging out. Maybe like the waters were hanging out in your basement for a while <laughs> and just making a good smell. And then finally... <laughs> After 150 days, it started going down, down, and down, and close, the whole the whole thing was about a year. It was uh, just just 11 days under a year, and it was actually in this month. Today is Rosh Chodesh. It's the tonight will be the first day of the month of Cheshvan, and it was in the month of Cheshvan. The 27th day of Cheshvan is when the the Mabul, the flood started, and on the 17th of Cheshvan, just 10 days short, 11 10, 11 days short, is when the ground, the earth, was dry. It says that Noah sent out a raven first to see if the water subsided and if there's any, anywhere for him to, uh, to rest himself, to stand. And he came back and then he sent out a dove a first time and a second time. And then the dove came back with a leaf showing that there is, uh, there is some life, there's things growing, it's dry. And he came out of the ark. Source number three. And it, the flood, blotted out all beings that were upon the face of the earth, from man to animal to creeping thing and to the fowl of the heavens. And they were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah and those with him in the ark survived. And they came out, Noah and his family, and by, uh, during the, the year in the ark, they were not, not allowed to procreate. They're not allowed to 
because it's a sad time for the world. But afterwards, they had a mitzvah to leave. There were a special commandment from God to leave the ark and rebuild the world, start to have children, grandchildren. And, and the Torah tells us all the children of, of Noah's three sons, the grandchildren, and they began a new, a new generation. And all of us today are descendants of, uh, of the family of Noah. The Jewish people come from the oldest son, oh, the, one that, the one that said first, Shem. Ten generations later was Abraham. So Abraham was tenth generation descendant of, of, uh, of Noah, from Shem. The Canaanites, for example, that lived in Israel, the, the land of Canaan, the Canaanites, they came from Ham, the second son. So that's the story. Why, yes. Why was, why was that? Was it because of the women that they married, that they were different? No, patrilineal. I'm saying they came oh. from... The name uh, Ham had a son, Kena'an. So his family, they were called the Canaanites. Yeah. What about the third son? Third son? Other nations. Um, the Torah mentions which nation. Some of the famous, maybe Midian. There's some famous nations that come from. Everyone comes from these three people. Sorry. Yes. So each family became a, they got bigger and bigger and they became their own nation. Eventually we're all the same. We all came from Adam and Eve. We're all related, right? So same thing after the flood, we all came from Noah's family. But I'm sure they were, when they were, family was small and I was just by, uh, for Shabbos, I was for the weekend in Montreal. We had a family reunion. All of my grandmothers, many of my grandmothers, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, thank God she has great-great-grandchildren and we got together. So... Lots of people, right? But eventually, as they you know, I, I have fifth, six cousins that are just, you know, we just, their family is so big that, you know, we don't even know each other. So the same thing. As the world progresses, the more people, the families get bigger and bigger, and then each nation is just, you know, they, they become different. They live somewhere else. Um, Noah, what's the timeline relationship to Abraham? What is it? Ten generations. Ten generations. How many years Abraham. exactly? About so, six, seven. Nine. So Actually, Abraham and Noah lived together because Noah lived till 900 and, 950, I believe. Okay. So Abraham was 58. Uh, it actually says he studied with Noah, but he was 58 when Noah passed. But there were no Israelites at that. There was nothing. They there was no Israelites, right? But, but saying, Israel. So who would you expect Noah and his family to repent to? Or the other, the, you know, the bad folks? Who did, who, repent? Who did their deity? Noah, they, they should, Noah believes in God. Noah was a righteous man. It says, God tells them, you, yeah. you I've seen as a righteous man. Noah was a righteous man. He was not corrupt. And they should have learned, they could have, uh, you know, followed his, uh, his lead. Followed his, uh... You've seen a righteous man before me in the generations. In other words, the, most of the civilization in the world didn't know Hashem. Is that correct? I don't know if they did not know Hashem or they were rebelling against Hashem. They didn't heed God's commands. So they should have taken up. They had, they don't have, they have any excuses, but they could have, they could have followed Noach's, uh, Noach was reprimanding them, if you can say. He was <coughs> trying to get them to do the right thing. So when um, Moses was given the, um, the law, the Torah, Ten commandments. Ten commandments. You know, I'm not ten commandments. I mean, explaining all about the flood. He, I mean, did he have that knowledge before? Before he was writing. I mean, in other words, there. He said Moses. 
Moses was dictated the yeah. written Torah by God. So God told him the story. Okay. Could be he knew it from before also, but the way it's written in the Torah was told to us by God. So here are the questions. Anybody have any other questions on the story? No questions? No, Probably not a good question I'm before. It all week. I'll keep my ultimate opinion to myself because it's, it's completely radical to what you're Let's hear. So, okay, so let's leave it after. I, I don't believe in those stories. I believe, like, and Reform will tell you that this whole story is like a lot of stories in the Bible, just parables. There is no, there is no ark on top of Mount Ararat. This is just a nice parable. Doesn't it invalidate the story? No. Doesn't, doesn't. it invalidate the story? But I'll let, but I'll just, as a paraphrase, it very small. But every culture, you know, has a flood story. Mm-hmm. And that was in Greece. I went up and they said, and, and the right. guy was telling me, you know, she was telling us that 8,000 BC, we have a nice story. And it's very similar. Yeah. Right. And she said, well, and so she says, just to think about, really, probably what really happened was they had the ice age, the ice was melting. Most people live by the coast. Like in the United States, 70% of the people live within 60 miles of the coast. And when it melted, it flooded. And you right. can understand then they had all these, all these stories. And this is just a nice parable. There was no... But it doesn't invalidate the story. It's a beautiful it story. A lot of stories in the Bible are all good. The stories are good. The living Torah is good. And the stories it doesn't invalidate. People want to invalidate it when I say it. Yeah, that is, a, that is an approach. But I believe... Me. Formal I believe... I believe... Every word in the Torah is taken literal. Every story in the Torah is a literal story. And the story also has lots of deep meaning, like we'll see. But the stories happen just like I believe in a miracle. I believe... That, yeah, the scientists are true. Maybe naturally there can't be such a thing. But could God split the sea? Yes. Anything. Could God uh, bring a flood? Yes. Could God create the world? Could yes. Could God create the world that the scientists... Could God create a world that scientists will say that looks like it's billions years old? Yes. God could do anything. He could even make a world that looks very old. And, and that's, they're right. And if you look at the world, they, you will come to, some, to such conclusions. But I believe that God is not limited to these rules, and if he created such a world, he can do it. He can do it in any way he wants. Not to say that the scientists are wrong; they are right, right. Besides that, their opinion always changes, but they're probably right. I agree. If I would be, a, you know, if I would be a scientist looking into the world, I would also come to the conclusion that the world is billions of years old, and I would also come to the conclusion that it doesn't make sense to be a flood and splitting of the sea and come up with all kinds of explanations. But I do believe that God is infinite, and God is not limited to the way we un- we understand things, and He can do a miracle. And therefore, I believe that, this, not just me, I'm, I'm basing it on what the, what the Torah tells us, that the stories of the Torah are literal. And you can disagree, but the, 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 that's the way we'll approach for today's lesson. You know, Jonah is not in the Torah, okay? So you can believe what you like. But the okay. Torah is... Sorry, one more? Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, uh, again, it's like... It's a bit, yeah, difficult to kind of... It, just, it's a whole discussion for itself. But if you say this is not literal, then anything in the Torah you can say, if you, are, if you can start saying this is literal, this is not literal, then keeping Shabbos is not literal, and, and uh, fasting on Yom Kippur is not literal, which, uh, yeah, and anything in the Torah is not literal. So where do you draw the line? The yeah, Torah teaches us that... Okay, yeah. There are things in the Torah that word places extra words, which try to teach us a lesson like... As the, house, as, as the house would be interpreted, I can't remember the details off my head, but there are places in the Torah where there's extra words. I, I still remember the details. Yes. Oh, well, I was trying. Uh, uh, like you said, uh, I mean, in the Torah, like the Jews were chosen people and uh, God uh, chose the Jews as God. But then again, uh, Noah, he, he, 
So what's the question? You don't have to be Jewish to be a righteous man. No, no, not that, but okay. But then, uh, so you want to call Noah chosen? Yes, he was chosen by God to be saved from the flood. You know how they made fun of him all those years for building the boat? Avram was chosen that his descendants will always be the chosen people. That was not told to Noah. Noah was told that you and your family are right now going to be saved from the flood. Not that. Okay, but then he chose Noah and then like they were all like descendants of Noah, diff different nations. So they were, can also say, oh, we were like chosen. No. Why, why should they say they're chosen? They were chosen to be saved from the flood. Yes, but they're not chosen uh, to be given. Chosen is, is, we were chosen to be given a certain set of laws. Okay. Okay. The question that I had in mind is... If the story is, right, we believe the story is literal. Four questions. Number one, this question was asked by the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi, the first Chabad Rebbe, lived about 250 years ago. And he says, I don't understand. So the world was corrupt. Okay, so they get punished. Why does God have to bring this big mobble, a flood for 40 days, a whole year, wipe out the whole world. Okay, some people sin, so you punish them. Lots, lots of times during history, they can, God could make them sick and they can die in a second. God could do anything, right? Why does he have to make this big garage? He said, what, this big tumult, the big noise, the whole big, uh, the whole big thing. It has so many ways how they can die. God has, you know, lots of ways. Why did he make such a big deal a whole big story, right? Just to punish them. So they were corrupt, so punish them, you know? Somehow arranged, they should all they could all die, they could all eat something, get a va who knows what, you know, they they so many ways. Why such a big on such a big scale? That's question number one. Question number two <clears throat> He already is doing it he's, he's taking some time to do it. Why did he choose to do it in forty days? Forty days and forty nights of rain. Something special about the number forty. It didn't take 40 days for everyone to be wiped out, by the way. It says that the waters were boiling hot. If you went to Israel, they have in the city of Tiberia and Tiberias, the hot springs. And it says in the Talmud that these hot springs were left over from the flood for reasons for, for, um, for healing. Hot springs. It's not, I was there. It's actually, you put your hand in the ground. It's a spring. It's hot, right? So it says that the, the, the waters by the, by the flood were not just hot, they were boiling. They were, they were, a person cannot, wouldn't be able to survive in such boiling water. Right? It didn't take 40 days. And it took exactly 40 days. It didn't take 39 days, not 41 days. Exactly 40 days. There must be something special about the number 40. Number three. Why did he choose water? But it made a big fire for 40 days. Why water? Why a flood? And finally, if we look in source number four, there's a verse from Isaiah, in the book of prophet, from the book of prophets. And it says there in a prophecy, I swore, God says, I swore that the waters of Noah shall never again pass over the earth. So the time later on, the Jewish people living in Israel were, they were, they were, full of, they were sinning. But, God says, I already swore right after the flood, God made a, God swore that he's never again going to bring the flood. But not a nation. Flood uh, on the whole world. Right, but not a nation, that's the thing. Right. Who do you swear to? 
to me, to me, Ira. He swore to Noah. He swore to Noah. And Noah was the leader of his generation. He told everybody. So what the question is, we shall never again pass over the earth. What a name for the waters, the waters of Noah. Noah wasn't the reason for the waters. Noah was the one that was saved from the waters. It should be called the waters of the, of the flood. That's the way the Torah in our parsha refers to it. The, water, the Mehamabu, the waters of the flood. It's not the waters of Noah. Noah was the opposite of the water. Noah was the reason there shouldn't be a flood. Right? So why does the Torah, when referring to the waters of the flood, it's called the waters of Noah? Uh, because Noah was only... Well, it's his fault that there was a flood? No, maybe it's because Noah, Noah didn't try to influence what other people do well. That's right. There is one explanation that Noah did not in, try hard enough to influence the people of his generation. So some, somehow, somewhat it was his fault. Okay, that is one explanation. We'll look for another one. Yeah, but he, he didn't go out, go out, didn't take the initiative. Somebody came to ask, what are you building? Is it all building an ark? He didn't go out there, right? So that's the fourth question. So the four questions are, why such a big tumult? Why such a big deal? Why number 40? Why 40, excuse me, 40 days? Why water? And why is the flood called the waters of Noah? So, is there an extra water there, please? Okay, so let's go on. Source number five. We're going to go on to explain a little bit about, we'll leave these questions aside, we'll get back to the story of the flood soon, and we will discuss something called a mikvah. A mikvah, I'm sure all of you heard the word mikvah. What does the word mikvah mean in Hebrew? It means gathering. A gathering, mikveh mayim, a gathering of water. A mikvah is a, it looks like a pool, a pool of water, but it's not just an ordinary pool. A mikvah, Probably you heard a mikvah in what in reference to? What do you hear about a mikvah? To be cleansed. To be cleansed. Why, when would someone go to a mikvah? Before they get married. Okay, interesting. Before the, who, who would go to a mikvah before they get married? Okay, who else uses a mikvah? Married women. Who else? Huh? Utensils. Never seen a mikvah. Utensils, right? Sometimes use it for utensils. Conversions. So we'll go through a, a little bit about a mikvah and we'll see what the idea of a mikvah is, and we'll get back to the flood. A mikvah is not just a pool of waters. If you tried to build a mikvah, I guarantee you, and even if I tried, it would be 100% invalid. A mikvah is a gathering of rainwater or natural waters. Okay, you cannot just fill up your bathtub if you have a big one or go into your pool for a mikvah. In order for a mikvah to be kosher, there are many, 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 many laws. It has to be made Usually there's an expert rabbi that comes out that's, you know, his, um, his expertise is building mikvahs. And the system is basically that it has to be natural water. They have to be in their natural state. So you can go into the ocean or river, but, or well, but the waters have to be, number one, Running. how are you going to get water into a, into a pool? You're going to use a hose or something or bring a bucket. Once the water goes into a bucket, they're not in their natural state. They didn't come naturally. Ocean is the, where they are naturally. So you have to get rainwater, and they have to build this, the building of the mikvah in a speci special way where they have pipes or, that are ready to get the rain, go straight into the pool. Okay? And that's very complicated. Because if there's any place in the pipe that has like a sitting area, that's already, that invalidates the water. 
It cannot be drawn water. It cannot be the water was sitting somewhere. It has to go straight pretty much from heaven. The way nowadays we, we don't uh, go to the ocean, so we, well, most people don't go to the ocean, so we have a built mikvah. But it is a very um, detailed and very complex way of building a mikvah. So it has to be rainwater. It has to be that the waters are 100% gathered, meaning that if there is any leak in the mikvah, if the water is trickling out some way, even a drop, it's invalid because the water is not gathered. It's moving. They're, 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 on their, they're moving out, right? All the waters are moving around. It has to be uh, standing still. So they have a whole system that the pool, the water that we go into, the pool, is actually is tap water, but they'll have a separate, behind the tiles, there's a, there'll be a little... There'll be another pool which has the rainwaters which are not as clean because they're there for many, many months sometimes because it's very hard to get rainwater. And they'll have like a hole going between the two pools. If you'll notice in the mikvah, they'll have a little hole. It has to be at least two inches in diameter. And they're called, the waters are called kissing. And when the waters are kissing, so that is when you go into the, this mikvah, it's as if you're going into the rainwater, a whole system and how they keep the waters clean. How they, a whole system, how, how, how the mikvahs are done. So that is a mikvah. So basically it's a pool of water, huh? Yes, it's a pool of water, a ritual pool. Natural water. So let's see, let's see a little in, in uh, history, historically, what the mikvah is used for. Ready? Okay. Source number five. After eating from the tree of knowledge, let's go a little faster so we can finish. After eating from the tree of knowledge and being driven from Eden, from Eden, Adam repented by sitting in the river. Last week, the, the Torah tells us that Adam and Eve, they sinned. They ate from the tree of knowledge that they were not allowed to. And he was driven from Eden. Eden is paradise where some place on earth, some special place where Adam was living before the sin. And he was chased out. He was driven out. And he realized his sin. And he repented. How did he repent? The Midrash tells us that he was sitting in the river. It's a whole, if you look in the, in the, in the beginning of the Torah, during the story over there, it says that all of a sudden it starts talking about rivers. It was rivers coming out of Aden and it's like doesn't fit into the story. And the Midrash says, why is it telling us about the rivers? Because Adam actually was sitting, he immersed himself in the river as a means of purification connected to his repentance. Until today, it's a custom, like we said, that you know, women go to the to the mikvah before marriage, but uh, that but men also the groom also there's many have a custom that a groom goes to to the mikvah before marriage, as beginning a new life, repenting of for for the past and starting anew. Because for for a groom, the day of his wedding is like a yom kippur. It says he's forgiven for all his sins. For the groom and the bride, they're forgiven for all his sins. The special day. So many fast on the day. I fasted on the day of my wedding. As well as before Yom Kippur, many have a custom to go to the mikvah. Men go to the mikvah before Yom Kippur as a means of, of repentance. Number six, continuing on in history, we have Abraham. Abraham was visited by how many angels? Three. Three, very good. We'll learn that in a few weeks. Three angels come, they appeared as Arabs, and he tells them, Please let a little water be taken and bathe your feet and recline under the tree. Where should they bathe their feet? The Zohar. The Zohar is the book of Kabbalah, tells us, the water refers to the mikvah in which Avraham immersed converts. Avraham had a mikvah there. He had a mikvah for 
Avram was teaching Abraham was teaching people to believe in God, and the uh, people in the, his times were serving idols. And he told them to wash their feet because they 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 worship the dust on their feet. Those people. So we see here another reference to the mikvah, the Zohar, and the Kabbalah says that this is a reference to the mikvah. Number seven. Later on in the story in the book of Exodus, we have Moses being thrown into the Nile, like all the baby boys are thrown into the Nile at the decree of King Pharaoh. And Moses' mother put him in the Nile in a little basket. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the river. Anyone know her name? Miriam or Zipporah? Miriam was Moses' brother or sister. A Pharaoh's daughter. Batya. Oh. Batya comes down to the river and she finds Moses there and, and she adopts him and he grows up into the, in the palace. What was she, why was Batya coming to the river? She lived in the palace. There was, you know, they didn't have to bathe in the river. She could have bathed uh, at home. Why did she come to the river? She came down, the Talmud tells us in Tractate Sota, she came down to cleanse herself from the impurity of her father's idols. Batya was... She was accepting God for whatever reason, what inspired her. She came to the mikvah, because there was no built mikvah at that time in Egypt, I guess. So she came to the river, which is a natural mikvah. She came to cleanse herself from the impurity of her father's idols. The mikvah is a place of becoming pure, of purification. And it says that because of that and that merit, she found Moses and, and uh, merited to raise such a great person for many years. Twelve years. So we see again a reference to the mikvah. Later on, the Jews stood at Mount Sinai and they received the Ten Commandments and they received the commandment to build a tabernacle, to build a temple. And who were the ones serving in the temple? The priests, the, priest, the Kohanim. We had a class about the Kohanim. And the Kohanim were commanded before, before starting their duties in the temple, they had to immerse in a mikvah. As well as the high priest, source number 8 from the book of Leviticus, with this shall Aaron enter the Holy of Holies. On Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, he shall gird himself with a linen sash and wear a linen cap, but those are holy garments, he shall immerse himself in water and don them. Right? So we see that again. Source number eight. For conversion. Source number nine, thank you. For conversions, we find that conversion, in order, if somebody wants to convert, obviously properly, according to halacha, he needs to immerse in a mikvah and as the Talmud says source 9 once he has immersed and emerged he is like a born Jew in every sense like a new person going to the mikvah makes him a Jew and technically according to Torah law he is not even related to his spouse or to any family members he says he has to get remarried to his wife because he, he, he's a new person by dunking by immersing into the mikvah he comes out he's a new person fully fully going under yes so other, other uh, I would say baptism is like this because they get everything. Just like they get all their flood stories, they get everything from us. They get everything from the Torah. And that's how they, I think I shared the story. There was once uh, an inquisition, the times of the inquisition, Spanish inquisition, they outlawed to have chicken soup. Chicken, to have chicken on Friday night. All right, choose chicken, chicken soup. So they wanted to get the Jews or see who's going to... So they said, no one's allowed to have chicken chicken soup on Friday night. And one time there's one guy, Yankel, Friday night, he's having his chicken soup. And I guess a, a spick, what do they call him, a Spanish guy walks by. <laughs> <laughs> Politically 
Oh, sorry, right, I see. Okay, I'm sorry. Spanish. 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 Eating chickens, he sees a little piece of chicken floating around in the bowl, and he goes to the authorities, and they come, they they bring this yanko, they arrest him, and they bring his chicken soup along, and they say, "What's it does? What's this?" He says, "This is not chicken soup. It's not chicken inside. It's a fish. Yeah, it's a fish." They say, uh, "What do you mean? <laughs> they taste it. This is chicken." He says, "No." He says, "What do you mean?" He says, "Well, my friend, my friend uh, Moshe." Was taken to the to the church and they sprinkled him three times with water and said you're a, you're a, you're a Christian or Catholic or a Catholic or Catholic and uh, and he came back and he says he's a he's a Catholic so I did the same thing I sprinkled the chicken I said you're a fish you're a fish you're a fish <laughs> and it's a fish. Right. Yeah, right. It's not just a sprinkle they get it they get it from the Torah the Torah says when somebody immerses in a mikvah not just a sprinkle of water a proper immersion in a kosher mikvah they come out as a Jew obviously they have to be taught the mitzvahs before but that's the that's the last step of the process immersing in the mikvah does it say for how long you have to be no it doesn't you don't have to be doesn't have, as long as you fully inside then you come right out it has to be you're fully immersed in the water but nowadays nowadays what it's mostly used for, biblically, is for married women, or a woman before her marriage, right before her marriage. I want to talk about, take a few minutes to talk about that. The Torah tells us, in source number 10, Do not come near a woman during her period of uncleanliness, uncleanness, to uncover her nakedness. That's one verse. Another verse, a man who lies with a woman who has a flow, both of them shall be cut off from their midst of their people. The Torah is very explicit in this prohibition that when a woman is menstruating, she has her period, her monthly time, it is forbidden for a man to come to be with her, to be intimate with her. And the, the terms the Torah uses is very severe. Both of them shall be cut off. It's, it's, a very, it's not a usual term uh, that the Torah uses. And the Torah sets uh, there's a set of laws how how a married couple should go about their intimate lives and it is that every every month when a woman uh, begins her her period flow she is ritually impure not unclean you know but just ritually in, unclean ritually impure for seven days Following following seven days, once the once it was established that her flow has ceased and she's and she is clean, then she begins a seven day process, which is called the seven white days, seven clean days, of a process of seven days with uh, in, in, internal checks to make sure that that she is um, not bleeding anymore. She's clean. And at the conclusion of seven days, sorry, it's not it's it's not seven. It's usually the first the set. At the conclusion of seven days, she immerses in a mikvah. Now, before immersing in the mikvah, she has to go through lengthy, lengthy and detailed preparation, preparing her body for immersion, and this whole bookshelf 
is dedicated to these laws. It's called the laws of family purity, Tarasa Mishpacha, family purity. And only after immersing in the mikvah, then she is permitted, and it's a mitzvah, to be together with her husband. Usually, usually on the calendar, it's actually in this week's parasha, it's a mitzvah to have children. And not just have children, to... Usually on the... If you know a little... The system is... If, the, if you know the system of the, of the body, so usually... The night of the mikvah, or the night after the system, right? The, the night of the mikvah is about 12, between 12 and 14 days after the onset of her period. That is the most um, fertile. fertile time. Well, that's when you have Right. The perfect timing. God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. <laughs> and that's why marriages used to last. Two weeks on, two Man, weeks on. Oh, so we look and it's 100%. She is, uh, Nancy is a Talmudist. She's quoting the Talmud. If you look in Source 11, what's one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons, obviously this is God's command, but one of the reasons that were taught to us in the Talmud of, about this mitzvah is, Source 11, He would be with her frequently and become disenchanted with her. The Torah said, Let her be impure for seven days so that she should become as desirable to her husband as when she entered the bridal canopy. It's like a monthly marriage. Every month, they're like getting married again. Every month for, for, for a couple that's keeping the laws of family purity, it's almost two weeks, about a little less, two weeks, uh, depending on the woman, about two weeks, you know, off time and then on time. And that is a mitzvah the Torah tells us. Until today, there are thousands and hundreds of thousands of women that keep this mitzvah. And by the way, it's not just religious women. Um, you know, me and my wife, we um, teach some you know, couples that are, that are you know, here in the community that you will look at them, you don't think they're religious. But they, these are some of the mitzvahs that they keep. You know, some, everyone has, like we always say, it's not all or nothing, right? They don't have to be... Uh, 100% it's we everyone does what they can and some people uh, they're you know they take upon themselves to keep this mitzvah and there's lots to learn about it all the, the process the details and uh, we personally um, you know guided Rifka and Rabbi Rickman many many couples but just uh, us being here for a short time um, guided and studied and uh, taught this beautiful mitzvah to many couples and and uh, Introduce them to the mitzvah of mikvah, and there, believe it or not, there are many women and, and families that keep this mitzvah um, here in, in, in our community. Sorry, quick question. Uh, going back to number 10, he's like, cut off from the midst of the people, uh, and he's like... Spiritually, Yom, spiritually, no, it's a spiritual... Yom Kippur, you can come back. It's a spiritual, it's a spiritual punishment. It's not, no one did anything to them. Especially because, how would anybody know, really? What happens after menopause? Does a woman still continue to go? Good question. She goes one last time, mm -hmm. and then, and then uh, they don't have this. They don't have this uh, mitzvah. Right. The same thing as if a woman is pregnant. Once she's pregnant, so again they have uh, some time. Right. So usually, by the time a woman gets to that stage, you know, if we get married young, by the time she gets to that stage, the point of this mitzvah is to teach the, so many advantages of this mitzvah. You know, one of the advantages is that for two weeks, all they can do is talk to each other instead of just enjoying each other's bodies. 
right? So after doing this mitzvah and learning to communicate with each other and love each other, not just for the physical aspect of it, then after so many years, they're already well-trained, you know, and they can live afterwards uh, with those values that they learned all those years. That's one way of, uh, of explaining it. So there are many, many details to, to this mitzvah, how it works. It's not just if she has a purity, even if she has to, you know, if she, anytime she sees blood, really. So there are lots of details and there are lots of rabbis that are experts specifically in this field. Rabbi Berkman is one that's trained and a lot of the calls that he gets from literally all over the world is specifically in this field. For example, uh, if you look in source 12, yeah? I just want to say one more thing about the mikvah. Some people think the mikvah is... I'll say, it, I'll say it after this. So it says in source 12 from Maimonides, if one immersed himself entirely with the exception of the tip of his little finger, he is still ritually impure. Hmm. If there is any intervening substance between them and the water, the immersion is invalid. So this shows us that immersion has nothing to do with just physically becoming clean. On the contrary, first of all, what if your little finger sticks out? So what if your finger is clean? So that, that invalidates the whole cleanliness? Because it's a, it's a ritually, it's something ritual, it's something spiritual. Your whole body has to be under the water. You have to be submerged and surrounded by water. As well as why if I come, with, when I come into the mikvah, I have something uh, intervening, something, uh, it's called a chatzitza, something separating between the body and the water. Why is it invalid? The waters will clean it. The process, one of the most detailed part of the process is the preparation of the body. You know, taking off nail polish and all kinds of different things. And so, so detailed, yeah. And that's why the mikvahs, nowadays mikvahs are... Beautiful. They're so spotless and sparkling clean. If you ever, if you've never been to mikvah, you can take a tour. The women's mikvahs are nowadays. They are literally a spa. Yeah. They have waterfalls and music. It's like it's a it's a beautiful place. Don't they have to be a certain size. Yes, they have to be a certain size. We'll get to that soon. But it's a beautiful place. And right near the mikvah pool, there is uh, you know the rooms of preparation. By the way, a mikvah is not. It's a single one one woman at a time. It's not a public bathhouse. It's, and there are rooms, the whole system, how it works, it's amazing to see. There's like a mikvah room in the center, a pool in the center. Then there are private rooms, you know, um, you know, preparation rooms that are all connected to the center room. There's a whole intercom system and then there's, you know, different women could be coming every night in a, in a busy community. And there's a, a mikvah lady, she's called a tendin, that she, every woman, everything is very discreet. This whole mikvah thing, you know, um... I can tell you I never heard of it till I got married, really. Now, I knew of the mitzvah because it says in the Torah where all the details and everything is something that's, that's everything, it's done very discreet. It's very, it's done in a very modest way, quiet way. And a woman comes to the mikvah, nobody knows besides the mikvah lady and her husband. And, and she goes straight into her private room and, and uh, it's done in a very um, modest and respectful way, especially in Chabad um, circles, something that the Rebbe really campaigned about and then should be done really beautiful and really nice and should be very inviting uh, for women and in the preparation room there'll be a, ba a regular bath for her to prepare but the mikvah itself is a, is a, is a ritual pool okay so we see a little bit about mikvah. Oh, it's getting late. So we see a little bit about mikvah. We see it in history. We see it's used for different ideas. So what is it exactly? What is the idea of the mikvah that it has the power to help for repentance for Adam? It has the power to 
to convert somebody. It has the power to uh, to purify a woman. Here the Torah says that if she didn't go to the mikvah, even if she stopped bleeding, but she did not yet go to the mikvah, she is forbidden to her husband. And if they're with each other, they're intimate, then they get cut off in a terrible sin. Right? And here, all of a sudden, she goes into some bath, a ritual pond, rainwater. She comes out. Now she's, now she's permitted to her husband. Now he's a Jew. What's so special about these waters? What is the idea of, of, of uh, immersing in the water? So it's a deep concept that's spoken about in, in Hasidot and in Kabbalah. And hopefully we can, take, uh, we can understand it a little bit, at least, by the following sources. In source number 13, a verse, the, first verse, it, the two, first two verses in the Torah, from last week's parsha. In the beginning, Bereshis, in the beginning, in Genesis, in the beginning of God's creation of the heavens and the earth, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. The beginning of creation, the water was, there was water, even before, later on, God created the light and, and the, everything, so all the animals, the, the moon, the, everything, everything was created later on. But right at the beginning, in the beginning of God's creation, there already was water. God, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water, but the water was already there. It doesn't even say God created the water. It says in the beginning there was water and then He created the light. In the beginning there was water. And the world, the earth, right? There was four, there was earth, the water, the, the earth was submerged in water. Only on the third day of creation, God said, let the waters gather in the oceans and let the earth float to the top and, and you know, become dry land. But in the beginning of creation, till the third day, the earth... Well, the earth was immersed in water. The earth was in a mikvah. It was immersed in water. And source 14, the earth's submersion underwater was a reflection of its self-nullification. Its identity as a creation that appeared independent from God was concealed and nullified. So the way the world looks now to us, we don't see God, right? It's seems like it's independent, the world is just around with some big bang and somehow we ended up here. We don't feel, we have to open the books and we have to start thinking, but we don't see always clearly how this world is dependent and nullified to God and, we, and, and God's constantly creating the world. When the world was created right in the beginning, the world did feel that. The world, God just created the world. The world was filled with God's presence. The world felt, it was felt in the world, how we're nothing. We're just a creation of God. And God's constantly creating us. And that, had, that manifested itself into the, physical, into the physical that the world itself was submerged in water. Water was the first creation. It was like the first touch from God. Water is something spiritual to it. And the world, the earth, was submerged in the water. The earth, what it, what it, what it means, that the earth was surrounded by water, that it was as if it's not there. It's like it was covered in water, right? It's as if it's not there. The world felt, in the world it was, it was felt and it was realized that they are dependent on God. They are a creation of God. So spiritually it felt that way and that had its, that's, it came out also physically that the world was submerged and surrounded by water. As if you can't see it. As if it's not there. As if it's just dependent on God. I'm not something for myself. That's the idea. Source 15. The waters of the mikvah represent divine awareness. When immersing ourselves in these waters, and it's not just any water, there has to be rain waters, rain waters that are directly from God, without any human intervention. 
we are meant to envision ourselves submerging in divine awareness, such that our normative awareness becomes swallowed up and submerged in divine consciousness. It's like we just forget about ourselves. We go under the water, you know, and that's it. The person can't survive too much underwater, right? There, you're nothing under the water. You're just under the water. We can't see you. You're just fully surrounded by water. And it's like just forgetting about yourself for a minute and thinking about God, thinking about Hashem. Just as the world was fully submerged under the water and all we saw was water, all, we, all that was felt was God's presence. Source 16, the immersing Jew signals a desire to achieve oneness with the source of our life. Everything started from water, right? To return to a primeval unity with God. Immersion indicates the abandonment of one form of existence to embrace one infinitely higher. We're connecting to the source of everything. We're connecting, we're starting again. Immersion in the mikvah is described not only in terms of purification, revitalization and rejuvenation, but also perhaps primarily as rebirth. It's something new. We're going back to the beginning. And we're starting again. And Source 17 from the book of the Chinuch, over a thousand years ago, tells us water represents the womb of creation. Just as a child, how does every child start? In the, in the mother's womb, in the, what's it called, the, the fluid, in the amniotic sac. amniotic sac, right? Water represents the womb of creation. Creation started with water. The world was like in its mother's tummy. It was surrounded with water. When a person immerses in a mikvah, he is placing himself in the state of the world yet unborn. Just as the world was submerged in water, he is placing himself, subjecting himself totally to God's creative power. <laughs> and now things are going to start to create. Now the world's going to come. Now it's going to be new. It started off submerged in water and then the world floated to the, the earth floated to the top and things started to grow and things started to... So the immersion in a mikvah is a very spiritual idea. The way Kabbalah explains it. It's coming in touch with God. Forgetting about ourselves. And if in Hebrew, what's amazing is that the word for immersion in Hebrew, and we know, the word for immersion is taval, tevila. Tevila, tibul, taval means to immerse. Three Hebrew letters, tes, beis, lamid. And the word for self-nullification is batel, bitul. The same letters, if you move around the letters, it's the same idea. Because immersing in a mikvah and going fully under, not even one <laughs> finger sticking, nothing left of you, fully under the water, that is the idea of self-nullification. And it takes a moment to connect to the infinite, to connect to something higher than you. That's the idea of the mikvah. And that is why the mikvah has to do with repentance, has to do with... Forgetting about yourself and thinking about God it has to do with conversion, becoming something new, reborn, and, and so on. Bitul. The same letters. If you move around the letters, it's the same idea. Because immersing in a mikvah and going fully under, not even one <laughs> finger sticking in, nothing left of you, fully under the water, that is the idea of self-nullification. And it takes a moment to connect to the infinite, to connect to something higher than you. That's the idea of the mikvah. And that is why the mikvah has to do with repentance, has to do with forgetting about yourself and thinking about God, it has to do with conversion, becoming something new, reborn, and, and so on. Now let's get back to the flood. Just to, okay, I'll save the stories for then in case someone has to leave. Source 18. Before the flood, physical matter was insensible to anything spiritual. 
In such an atmosphere, people felt little accountability for their actions. The global mikvah had a purifying effect on the physical world, bringing soul and body to a heightened level of communication. After the flood, even if people became corrupt, their newfound spiritual sensitivity would ensure that they would have the motivation to repent. Till the flood, once the world was on the third day, the, the earth uh, came up, and people forgot, started forgetting about God. It happened pretty fast. They started to serve <laughs> idols, and the world got, got worse and worse and worse. They became so corrupt, and even Noah building the, the ark for 120 years still did not inspire them. They were at such a low point that they were, they, they were so desensitized that they didn't, they, uh, God and spirituality and coming doing the right thing just didn't, they didn't, uh, didn't mean anything to them. The world was at, was at the brink. They needed, something was wrong. It got to such a low level. And God said, it's not just about a punishment. I'm, the, the world needs a mikvah. The world needs a purification. They need to come in touch with the divine again. And even if after, and, and even if after they, they're going to sin, right? And it happens. But they had that in them. They were submerged in the mikvah. They have it in them, that, that um, sensitivity the spirituality that even after they may have sinned, they will have the motivation to come back and realize their sin and, and return to Hashem. Source 19. And here is how the altar... One second, one second. So here is the altar, Rebbe, the one that asked the question. He answers in Source 19. During the flood, the, the world's spiritual state resembled its lofty state at the beginning of creation when it was covered by water. The whole world, it says, right? Even the tallest mountains, not a finger sticking out because it was a real mikvah. Even the tips of the mountains were covered. The whole world was submerged. Not just the sinners. The whole entire world was submerged. Resembling the way it was in the beginning of creation. Not just physically, but also spiritually. There was the feeling and the recognition that the God, that, uh, of godliness. <laughs> so for the generation of the flood, the waters were a punishment. Yes, they, they sinned and they needed to be punished. And they all died. They perished. But for the world itself, it wasn't just punishing these people, because then they're going to sin again and keep punishing, punishing, and we need to come to a solution. For the world itself, the waters were a blessing, since the world became spiritually cleansed through them. The flood was a global mikvah, submerging the water physically, the world into water, but spiritually bringing a, a bitzel, a self-nullification, a recognition of godliness to the world. And we see here in the word mikvah, which is the word for the, for the yeah, mikvah, has the same letters as the word koma. Koma means kum, stand up, to elevate, because the mikvah is elevating. When, we, when one immerses in a mikvah, it, is a, um, it has an effect of elevating the person and here the world at large. So that answers the first question. That answers why God didn't just punish those that were corrupt. He, brought, he made this big tumult, he made this big deal. Because it wasn't just about punishing these specific people. It was about purifying the world. To the way it was back, and resembling the way it was back in the beginning. And that's why he chose water. Because water was the first creation. Water has something spiritual about it. And why 40? Why 40 days? So we find the number 40. Ira always says some, something special about the number 40. It was 40 days talking about Teshuvah. When Yonah, you mentioned Jonah, Yonah came to the city of Nineveh. We read the story on the afternoon of Yom Kippur. 
and he was telling the city of Nineveh they have to repent. They were terrible. And he says, in 40 days, God's going to turn over the city. They had 40 days to repent. We see the number 40 is connected to rebirth, to purification, to becoming new, to changing. We find that the Torah was given to the Jewish people in 40 days. They had to prepare 40 days for such a special time to get the Torah. 40 days, Moses on the mountain. For the Jews to enter the land of Israel, how many years did they spend in the desert? 40. 40 years preparing themselves to enter the land, of the holy land of Israel. And we find the number 40 many, many, many times. What's special about the number 40? The number 40 is connected to the mikvah. The mikvah in source 20, the halacha is, the law is, Tambo tells us, the mikvah, how much water does the mikvah have to contain? How, somebody asked. Yeah. It must contain water in which his whole body can enter. How much is this? The sages estimated that the measure for ritual bathwater is 40 sa'ah. Sa'ah is an ancient uh, measurement, sa'ah. Today, there's different opinions exactly how we measure it, but the custom is to put about 1,000 liters, maybe 250 gallons of water in the ritual bath. That's the minimum. Anyways, for it's used one person at a time. It doesn't have to be that big. Men's mik men also, by the way, go to mikvah. A lot of Hasidim use the mikvah um, for Shabbos or even every morning. And men's mikvahs are not as private, and many men use it at the same time, so it's usually a much bigger pool. But it needs to be forty. Why number forty? We see that we see that purification of the mikvah has to be specifically a number forty. Forty so. What's 40? Source 21, the Talmud tells us, the sages said that the formation of an embryo in the womb of a woman takes 40 days. Talk about uh, abortion, talk about these things. According to Torah law, under 40 days is not considered a life, a child. Now, don't do anything yet. <laughs> First ask a rabbi. But um, generally 40 days is the cutoff line. 40 days. 40 days takes for an embryo. Now, Maybe there's a heartbeat, I don't know, maybe there's a heartbeat, I don't remember, a little earlier. But even now with all the technology, the ultrasounds and everything, the even the doctors will tell you that around 40 days is when it's not called an embryo anymore, it's called a fetus, I believe. That is when it starts to look like a human. If you ever look at the, I don't know, the, the, the pictures or the, you know, the ultrasounds, you will see that till then it looks like, I don't know, a dolphin or something. But uh, just about 40 days is when it starts to be hands and feet and starts to look like a human. 40 days. In order for a child to be born, for something to be born, to start being created, to change from an embryo, to change from something and turn it with the help of water, right? Being surrounded with water, be turned into um, a child, a fetus, 40 days. 40 days to create a child. What's special about the number 40? So before we get, but the main thing is that we see that 40 day, 40 is connected to a mikvah. So therefore, therefore, there, if the, the flood waters are going, are, are a mikvah, so it has to be connected to the number 40. For one person, 40 saw, 40, you know, saw uh, measurements of water is enough. But for the whole world, you need 40 days. It's a big mikvah. So 40 days of water, but connected to the number 40. Now, technically, what is special about the number 40? It's a very lengthy explanation. But in Kabbalah, it talks, in Hasidus at length, it talks about that there's four worlds, the four spiritual worlds. And if you ever heard about it, it's called Atsilos, Berea, Yetzira, and Asiya. There's the four spiritual realms of levels of creation. We're the lowest. Each of these four worlds have ten sephiros, the ten emanations. Sephiros, uh, by Tefillin Club, 
Rabbi spoke about it a few times, the ten emanations. If you notice, uh, when we put on tefillin, we wrap ten times. Three over here and seven here, a total of ten. Ten is a complete number. Ten is the, the, the ten ways, the emanations, expressions of the soul. And same thing of God, ten uh, emanations. And there's in each of these four worlds, so basically creation has to do with 40 because there are four worlds in each of the four, there's ten. Ten parts is, uh, equals 40. So anything that has to do with creation, reborn, purification, all these kind of things is connected to the number 40. So that's the Kabbalistic side of it, which is, just, which is deep and not for now. But we definitely see that a mikvah is connected to the number 40, and that's why the flood was for 40 days. And that also answers why the flood was called the waters of Noah. Noah, what does Noah mean in Hebrew? Noah comes to the word menucha. I don't know what that means. Rest. Rest. Noach means in Hebrew, in modern Hebrew, Noach means it's easy, it's calm, it's nice for me. You know, menucha. Noach means to rest because the, these were waters of Noach. These were resting waters. They were they were calming waters. They were purifying waters. It wasn't just waters of punishment. If it was just to punish, it could have somehow killed them quickly and uh, who knows what? Sent some lions. Who knows? It could have done anything. Here, these were waters of Noach. They were purifying waters. Let's just, let me just finish and we can ask questions. Now, we know a little bit about a mikvah. We know a little bit about the concept of a mikvah, the idea of a mikvah. And we, we understand that the story of the flood was not just a punishment. It was a global immersion in the mikvah. Source 22. What does this have to do with us? Sometimes we have to go to the mikvah. Not necessarily... We have to go to a proper mikvah, go to a proper mikvah. But the idea, idea of a mikvah is to sometimes we have to just forget about ourselves and even for a moment connect to something higher than us. Not think how I understand it and how I feel and how I... Forget about the I. And just... What did, they, what did I just read recently? If you, if you switch illness, you take out the I from illness and you replace it with we, we it's wellness. Not exactly. The idea is that we have to take away the I. Take away the I for a second. Whether it's submerging in a physical mikvah or there's a spiritual kind of mikvah. What is that? Source 22. Metaphorically, entering the ark refers to entering the words of Torah study and prayer, which serve to protect us from the flood of worries that threaten to inundate us. When enveloped by these letters and words, we are impervious to harm. Just as Noah was protected from the flood waters by, in, by being in the ark, the word for ark in Hebrew is teva. The teva. And the same word teva means words. It means an ark. It also means words in Hebrew. Tevot means words. Teva are the words of Torah and, and of prayer. When we lock ourselves. What is huh? That's another word. Teva is in Lashana Kodesh, ancient Hebrew. When we go into the ark, we go, we immerse ourselves in the words of Torah like we're doing right now. We immerse ourselves in the words of prayer without thinking about who's looking at us and without thinking about what am I going to gain, what am I, whatever. We just immerse in the mikvah. We throw ourselves into the pool with the alligator. We just go in there. Then we are protected from the floodwaters. And source 23. One who meets life storms, 
while in the safe sanctuary of the ark, meaning Torah study, prayer, will find that the storm waters, which seem to be destructive, are actually purifying waters. He purifies us by sending challenges and tri tri tribulations in our direction. If we are properly prepared for these storms by ha being in the ark, they bring out our highest and most noble qualities, elevating us to spiritual heights. If we are protected with the words of Torah and Tzvila, we are focused and we sometimes immerse ourselves, we forget about everything, we immerse ourselves in the Torah, we immerse ourselves in studying something, we immerse ourselves in thinking about God, in prayer, we immerse ourselves in doing something good, or doing a mitzvah, and we just forget about ourselves for a second and do what's right, whether it makes sense and doesn't make sense, we do what our grandparents and our great grandparents were doing for three and a half thousand years, we have the ark, we are enveloped by the ark, then we look outside, we look outside in, the tr in a crazy world, and it is a crazy world. All right? There are people that even say that the flood never happened. That's how crazy it is. <laughs> right? Not everybody seems to believe. Not everything. Just as, that's, that's some of the good things. But there are people that say all kinds of things, right? And all kinds of opinions, all kinds of, act, all kinds of behaviors. We live, in a, we live in a tough world, in a turbulent world outside. There's a flood outside. But when we are protected, we have the, right, the words of the Torah to guide us in life and we have the words of prayer to protect us, then we look outside and we see these are just challenges there to bring out our best. And we just need someone to push us into the water and we'll be able to overcome any alligators. Yeah. Okay, I'll share a two story if anyone wants to hear about a mikvah. How many weeks is a woman pregnant? About 40. That's not a question for me. <laughs> about 40. Between 30. Oh, are you saying 40 weeks? Oh, that's interesting, okay. You're saying 40 is also connected to the whole pregnancy. Interesting, yeah. okay. I haven't seen that in the Talmud, but it uh, could be. Right, that makes sense. A two, two stories about a, about a mikvah. One story I heard from Rabbi Manus Friedman. Anyone heard of him? Yeah. Rabbi Manus Friedman is very famous yeah. online. You can look him up. Actually, his son is married to my mother, Rivka's sister. So he comes there. He actually like runs, it's a website called It's, it's Good to Know. So he runs uh, you know, his father's uh, operations. So he said like this. There was a woman living in Russia during the times of the Soviet Union. I'm not sure what, maybe in the 50s this was, the 40s, the 50s, um, where it was tough to have a proper mikvah. The authorities outlawed you know, religious practice. And they closed the mikvahs, they locked the mikvahs. There was no such thing as going to the mikvah. But there were many women that persevered and uh, were, were uh, committed to, to do this mitzvah, even at great risk. This particular woman did not have a uh, you know, built nice mikvah, council mikvah to go to, so she would go to the river. She would go late at night when nobody was there, privacy. But if she would be caught there, she obviously, first of all, I don't know how safe it was there to go at night, but, uh, but especially if somebody would ask you, what are you doing here exactly, you know, what's, what's she doing, uh, so you know, she would be questioned, and it would be a religious, uh, you know, felony against the, right? who knows what could happen, she could, they could lose her, she could lose her job and something, so she went, and this is what she did every month, 
One time, she, you know, she did it, she immersed, she, she got out, and it was cold, she, she was getting dressed. And while she's getting dressed, she thought so, maybe she doubted herself, maybe she wasn't fully submerged in the water. You know, she, it's quickly, she was scared, it's late, and it's, I don't know, there was a current, you know. And you know, maybe some hair was sticking out, she wasn't sure. Usually there's a, you have, uh, you have somebody, the, the mikvah woman, once, once the woman is in the water uncovered, then she'll come in. Uh, you know, and uh, just make sure she's fully in, so to, to observe. So she didn't know what to do. Should she go back? Every every minute she's there is uh, you know life threatening, but she decided she has to go back. She got undressed again. She went back in and uh, and immersed and came home. And as the mitzvah is, she was, you know, with her husband. But years later, she came to the Rebbe. She came out of Russia. I believe this was in the early 70s, and she came to New York. She was a, a Lubavitcher chassid, a, a, a Chabadnik, a Lubavitcher woman, and she came to have a private audience with the Rebbe. And she showed the Rebbe a picture of her family. And the Rebbe was looking, and the Rebbe looked at one, I believe it was a boy, and the Rebbe said, there's something special about this boy. I see on his face. I don't think she told the Rebbe the story then, but the Rebbe just said, I see something special. This boy was conceived right after that, um, that incident. What was so special about him? That she sacrificed herself. She put herself at risk to go back into the mikvah to do it properly. She doubted herself, she went back in, and the child that was born from that immersion had something special about him. Not everyone could see it. I don't think she herself saw something special about him. But the Rebbe, holy man, is able to see that there was something special about this child from immersing in the mikvah. I don't know. I, he didn't say the story. I don't know if it, I guess for privacy. I don't know. He didn't say the, the name. Family that lived in Israel, then they came to... Uh, that was one story. A second story is, if you ever go to Israel or even to Europe, you go touring, you'll see ancient mikvahs. Thousands, two thousand years old. By the Temple Mount, they have uh, it's called the, the Southern Excavations. They have mikvahs, and there's ways to know because there's one pool, and then there's this little path, you know, little uh, two-inch thing to another pool where there was the rainwater. Even on Masada, you know, Masada, the, was there many times, and they they have mikvahs there. What did the Jews do there? They built a mikvah, and it's amazing that you can see today how the the whole the whole system of the mikvahs. And in Europe, you can see uh, many ancient mikvahs, sometimes of Rashi, thousands of years ago. It was uh, something that Jews, Jewish people kept for years. So this story, my brother, last night I was by a, by a wedding, a cousin's wedding, and my brother told me this story, that uh, my brother works in Jem. Jem is uh, Jewish Educational Media. You can look them up. They are an organization based out of Crown Heights, and they um, produce... Videos of the Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, for 40, 42 years of his leadership. There was, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of videos, hours and videos and, and pictures, everything. They have a whole archive. It's like state of the art. Um, they produce videos. And they, one of the projects they have is called, it's an oral interview. It's called My Encounter with the Rebbe. They find people that met the Rebbe in private audiences or dollars hundreds of thousands of people have probably met him yeah. or corresponded with him and uh, even here in Seagate I, I helped um, a couple of families that were by the Rebbe 
and had uh, they never had a picture or a video of him with them with them with him, and I found it for them, you know, to help my brother. See where my brother works in this office. So this project, it's a beautiful project, and they put out every week another five minute clip of an interview with somebody. It's very done very professionally. A story with the Rebbe. So my brother told me the story last night. He, uh, my brother, gets like the full interview. You know, they just put a little clip on this on the video, but my brother actually goes through the whole interview, types it up, and prepares it for for a publication. What was the story? There's a guy. His name is Yechiel Michal Stern, a rabbi in Israel. Nachabad, a rabbi, a rabbi in Israel, and he was he's like a minister of religious affairs or something, you know, from the, from the government. And there was a couple, he says a story, there was a couple that were married for, for a couple of years, and you have to go, uh, and they, were, they still do not have children. They wrote a letter to the, to the Rebbe, to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, asking for a blessing for children, and the Rebbe said, if they will keep the laws of family purity, then they will merit children. They were a religious couple, they were, you know, they, they were following all the, all the rules, so they said, okay, let's, we'll study it again. They sat down with the rabbi, uh, his name was Rabbi Asher Lemel Cohen, a rabbi in Jerusalem, and they study everything together, and they were doing everything perfect, you know, and still nothing happened. They wrote again to the Rebbe, and the Rebbe said again, if they will keep the laws of family prayer, they didn't know what to do. So, Rabbi Cohen came to this man, Rabbi Stern, the guy telling the story, and he says, listen, this that this couple is keeping the laws properly, I believe him. I believe them. And they're keeping it properly. This that the Rebbe said that, they, that they're not keeping it properly because he keeps saying if they keep it properly. I also believe the Rebbe, right? So the only thing could be is that there's something wrong with the mikvah. Maybe there's something, something that happens. Mikvah always has to be checked. It has to be, it's like, just like you have on food, a kosher symbol. Every mikvah has a kosher, a restaurant has a kosher certification and a mikvah has to be constantly checked. Make sure there's no leaks. And So they went to the, they were going to, to the mikvah where this woman would go. And uh, the rabbi there gave them a hard time. They didn't want to let them in. Anyways, they got in. Uh, they checked the first pool, that what, what you see. Everything looked fine. No. Then they went to the, it's called the Oitzar, the, you know, where the rainwater is in the back, where you know, it's dirty and not everyone could see. It's just rainwater. They come over there, and there was a leak in the rainwater pool, which doesn't get changed for a couple months sometimes. And there was no water there, which means that this mikvah was just regular tap water. It was not connected to the, the, the rainwater, and it's invalid. And they, of course, were very shocked and everything, but they understood what the Rebbe wrote. <coughs> fixed it, and a couple, a short time later, uh, had their first child. So, many times, we know, we put on mezuzah, we have the protection for the home. We do this mitzvah, for this protection, the different mitzvahs give us extra blessings, but that is what's special. Uh, about the mikvah. Any questions? <laughs> yeah. That's very informative. Very good. Very nice. I think people have... 40. Uh, 40 days, 40 weeks, yeah. 40 years. Right, so the mikvah is really, really. Now, yeah. men can take a mikvah. Can a woman still, after menopause, take a mikvah just for the? Yeah. So she definitely should do one time. You know, it's a, it's a, it's an amazing thing because a woman, while she's still in her, you know, menstruating, so she has to go every month unless she's pregnant. But afterwards. Just goes once. I know. Rifka uh, took You know, they just go once, and then and they're good for unless they have a procedure sometimes. But you know, generally, you know, they're very good. 
is there such a thing as just going um, for? I, I, I wouldn't know. It's it's more like the woman's. Uh, but the men are allowed to. Though. The men. So the men. Yeah, most. It's mainly a Hasidic custom. Everybody has a custom to go before Yom Kippur. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as, as, sometimes Shabbos. So Hasid, yeah, some Hasid, It's mainly a Hasidic practice because it's for extra purification, right? Mm-hmm. You know, a, a Hasid is someone who always goes like beyond the letter of the law. And just extra careful. Like, uh, for, uh, I put on two pairs of tefillin every day. Right? So there's a regular pair of tefillin. And then there is, there is another opinion how the tefillin is supposed to be done. So Hasidim generally put on a second pair of tefillin to follow the stringent opinion. Which, right, you're right. So that's something, a Hasid in general means someone that goes beyond the letter of law to do extra. So a Hasid for extra purification um, will we'll go to mikvah. I personally try to go every, every morning. Here in Seagate there are three men mikvahs. Really? really? Yes. Usually yeah, close to a shul. Usually it's close to a shul. There's a woman's mikvah here. The woman's mikvah here in Seagate, from what I hear, is not it's not a Chabad mikvah. So it's not as beautiful. It's nice. It's nice. It's nicer than a men's mikvah. But uh, it's not as beautiful. We have we have a plan one day we just it's not it's not so simple if we build a mikvah here because we'll be taking away from them and that's not so not, not so nice. Actually the law is that a shul is sold to build a mikvah. A mikvah is more important than a shul. Really? Because a shul, you can pray anywhere. We can pray here, we can pray out, as long as you have people together. But a mikvah is the continuation of the Jewish people. We can't have children properly, right, to do the mitzvah without, uh, you know, without the mikvah. So actually a shul is sold. One time, the Rebbe was so strong on a mikvah being beautiful and being uh, accessible and, and, and comfortable for women. One time there was in the mikvah in Crown Heights. So Crown Heights is... Lots of women, you can imagine, uh, uh, using the mikvah, it's a factory over there. There's not just one pole, there's like six, seven poles, and they have they have at least two in Crown Heights, I know, and I think they're building a third one. Um, it's like a whole building and tons of rooms, and they have also an Avenue S, the Sephardic Center, I think they have also, you know, mass mikvahs. Very big. Yeah. And... All over. Uh, so... So the Rebbe got wind that there was a woman that, that fell in the mikvah. I think the, the, the tile and the, and the steps, something happened. And the Rebbe was, was very, um, you know, very upset about it. And it seems like nobody was doing anything. Maybe they fell. No one, the Rebbe wanted to, you know, that the whole mikvah should be redone or something. I don't know the details. This was in 1983. I, I read the transcript of the, of the talk. The Rebbe said in public on Shabbos that people weren't, I guess, getting the message how important it is to him. And he said, I had no choice. I followed the law and I sold the 770. I sold our, my shul. 770 said, I sold it and I sent the money to be used for the mikvah. Of course, uh, when the Rebbe said that right away, they, they, you know, everyone gave money and they bought back the shul. But the Rebbe said, that's what I did. That, that was wake, to wake people up. To sell the shul to make the mikvah beautiful. So it's uh, something that the Rebbe was very, um, you know, very uh, strong about. Having so it, the truth is, a lot of people don't know about mikvah. That in recent years, especially since the Rebbe's camp, the Rebbe started the campaign in 1975. Um, you know, the Rebbe made this campaign to build mikvahs all over. It used to be mikvahs were you know a little bit dingy and not so nice, and uh, but now it's it's really nice. They're all over, there's an organization called Mikvah USA, and they build mikvahs all over the all over um, you know all over. Uh, now pretty much any anywhere you go, even on vacation, you'll find a nice mikvah. So we're you're good to go. In Kiev, yeah. Thank you so much. Very welcome. Next week.
We'll learn about Abraham. Abraham. Who wants to hear a quick one about an alligator? Troy, Troy, didn't dip his heel in the water. You know what happened? That was the one part of his body that he, and he became 